Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. 
This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. a podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I've got a really lovely story for you tonight to continue with this, uh, these Pride Month episodes by one Hans Christian Andersen. But before we get to tonight's story, uh, I just want to thank all of our brand new patrons on Patreon.com which is a site where you can go and pledge a couple bucks for an ad-free version of the show. So, this week's patrons. Allison Brooks, Jen, Erica, Pat Swanson, and Lydia Lane. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making the show. It really, really means a lot. And for anyone who doesn't know, all these names that I just read are brand new patrons of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a website where you can go and directly support the people who make the things that you like. So, if you like the Sleepy Podcast, then you can go to Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio and donate even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. Like I said, um, $2 a month gets you access to the ad-free version of the sleepy podcast and then at five dollars a month you get access to our poetry feed which is over 50 episodes of poetry readings that are not on the regular podcast feed much like the emily dickinson episode that i did last week but no matter how much you donate even if it's a dollar i will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do so again if you want to be a part of making this show, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Well, tonight, um, we're going to be reading this uh, lovely story. The Little Mermaid, which I read on the show years and years ago. Uh, it was dedicated for Aerith, the daughter of one of our lovely patrons. And I'm bringing it to the top of the feed now for a couple reasons. Um, one, it's just a lovely story. I love anything Hans Christian Andersen writes. Um, he is the mastermind behind a lot of our favorite stories that um, we still love today, including the story that um, inspired Frozen, of course, The Little Mermaid, and um, yeah, he's, he's an author I've read a lot on this show, and I love reading him, and from uh, hearing from you all, I know that you love listening to his stories. Another reason is um, the 
live action version of The Little Mermaid uh, just came out and um, I feel like this is an appropriate time to be uh, featuring the original story that inspired it. And then lastly, it's Pride Month. And while Hans Christian Andersen um, was never outwardly queer uh, in public, um, scholars have learned from his letters that he almost definitely was. Um, uh, he actually had quite a love and affection for a man named Colin and um, wrote him very loving letters where he does not exactly mince his words and his feelings for him. And uh, tragically, Colin uh, got married in 1836 and um, that's when Hans Christian Andersen fled to the island of Finn and um, that's where he ended up being heartbroken and writing this story about a heartbroken mermaid, the little mermaid. So um, it's this really sad heartbreak story of Hans's that has inspired um, a story that lives in a lot of our hearts very nostalgically and is now kind of re-emerging in its new form in 2023, this new movie. And uh, it all dates back to um, one tale of unrequited love back in the 1830s. So, tonight, I hope you very much enjoy falling asleep to The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. The Little Mermaid Far out to sea, the water is as blue as the petals on the loveliest cornflower and as clear as the purest glass. But it is very deep, deeper than any anchor rope can reach. Many church steeples would have to be placed one on top of the other to reach from the bottom up to the surface of the water. Down there live the mermen. Now, it certainly shouldn't be thought that the bottom is only bare and sandy. No, down there grow the strangest trees and plants, which have such flexible stalks and leaves that the slightest movement of the water sets them in motion as if they were alive. All the fish, big and small, slip in and out among the branches, just the way the birds do up here in the air. At the very deepest spot lies the castle of the king of the sea. The walls are of coral, and the long, tapering windows are of the clearest amber. But the roof is of mussel shells, which open and close with the flow of the water. 
the effect is lovely, for in each one there is a beautiful pearl, any of which would be highly prized in a queen's crown. For many years, the king of the sea had been a widower, and his old mother kept house for him. She was a wise woman, and proud of her royal birth, and so she wore twelve oysters on her tail. The others of noble birth had to content themselves with only six. Otherwise, she deserved much praise, especially because she was so fond of the little princesses, her grandchildren. There were six lovely children, but the youngest was the fairest of them all. Her skin was as clear and opalescent as a rose petal. Her eyes were as blue as the deepest sea. But like all the others, she had no feet. Her body ended in a fishtail. All day long, they could play down in the castle, in the great halls where living flowers grew out of the walls. The big amber windows were open, and then the fish swam into them, just as on land the swallows fly and when we open our windows. But the fish swam right over to the little princesses, ate out of their hands, and allowed themselves to be petted. Outside the castle was a large garden, with trees as red as fire and blue as night. The fruit shone like gold, and the flowers looked like burning flames from their stalks and leaves were always in motion. The ground itself was the finest sand, but blue like the flame of brimstone. A strange blue sheen lay over everything down there. It was more like standing high up in the air and seeing only sky above and below than like being at the bottom of the sea. In a dead calm, the sun could be glimpsed. It looked like a purple flower from whose chalice the light streamed out. Each of the little princesses had her own tiny plot in the garden where she could dig and plant just as she wished. One made her flower bed in the shape of a whale. Another preferred hers to resemble a little mermaid. But the youngest made hers quite round like the sun and had only flowers that shone red the way it did. She was a strange child, quiet and pensive, and while the other sisters decorated their gardens with the strangest things they had found from wrecked ships, the only thing she wanted besides the rosy red flowers that resembled the sun high above was a beautiful marble statue. It was a handsome boy carved out of clear white stone and in the shipwreck it had come down to the bottom of the sea. By the pedestal she had planted a rose-colored weeping willow. It grew magnificently and its fresh branches hung out over the statue and down toward the blue, sandy bottom where its shadow appeared violet and moved just like the branches. It looked as if the top and roots played at kissing each other. Nothing pleased her more than to hear about the world of mortals up above. The old grandmother had to tell everything she knew about ships and cities 
mortals and animals. To her it seemed especially wonderful and lovely that on earth the flowers gave off a fragrance, since they didn't at the bottom of the sea, and that the forests were green, and those fish that were seen among the branches there could sing so loud and sweet that it was a pleasure. What the grandmother called fish were the little birds, for otherwise the princesses wouldn't have understood her, as they had never seen a bird. When you reach the age of fifteen, said the grandmother, you shall be permitted to go to the surface of the water, sit in the moonlight on the rocks, and look at the great ships sailing by. You will see forests and cities too. The next year, the first sister would be fifteen, but the others, each one was a year younger than the other, so the youngest still had five years left before she might come up from the bottom of the sea and find out how it looked in our world. But each one promised to tell the others what she had seen on that first day, what she had found to be the most wonderful thing, for their grandmother hadn't told them enough. There was so much they had to find out. No one was as full of longing as the youngest, the one who had to wait the longest, and who was so quiet and pensive. Many a night, she stood by the open window and looked up through the dark blue water where the fish flipped their fins and tails. She could see the moon and stars. To be sure, they shone quite pale, but through the water, they looked much bigger than they do to our eyes. If it seemed as though a black shadow glided slowly under them, then she knew it was either a whale that swam over her, or else it was a ship with many mortals on board. It certainly never occurred to them that a lovely little mermaid was standing down below, stretching her white hands up toward the keel. Now, the eldest princess was fifteen and was permitted to go up to the surface of the water. When she came back, she had hundreds of things to tell about. But the most wonderful thing of all, she said, was to lie in the moonlight on a sandbank in the calm sea and to look at the big city close to the shore where the lights twinkled like hundreds of stars and to listen to the music and the noise and commotion of carriages and mortals, to see the many church steeples and spires, and to hear the chimes ring. And just because the youngest sister couldn't go on up there, she longed for all this the most. Oh, how the little mermaid listened. And later in the evening, when she was standing by the open window and looking up through the dark blue water, she thought of the great city with all the noise and commotion and then it seemed to her that she could hear the church bells ringing down to her. The next year the second sister was allowed to rise up through the water and swim wherever she liked. 
She came up just as the sun was setting, and she found this sight the loveliest. The whole sky looked like gold, she said, and the clouds. Well, she couldn't describe their beauty enough. Crimson and violet, they had sailed over her, but even faster than the clouds, like a long white veil. A flock of wild swans had flown over the water into the sun. She swam toward it, but it sank, and the rosy glow went out on the sea and on the clouds. The next year, the third sister came up. She was the boldest of them all, and so she swam up a broad river that emptied into the sea. She saw lovely green hills covered with grapevines. Castles and farms peeped out among great forests. She heard how all the birds sang, and the sun shone so hot that she had to dive under the water to cool her burning face. In a little bay, she came upon a whole flock of little children. Quite naked, they ran and splashed in the water. She wanted to play with them, but they ran away terrified. And then, a little black animal came. It was a dog, but she had never seen a dog before. It barked at her so ferociously that she grew frightened and made for the open sea. But never could she forget the great forest and green hills and the lovely children who could swim in the water despite the fact that they had no fishtails. The fourth sister was not so bold. She stayed out in the middle of the rolling sea and said that this was the loveliest of all. She could see for many miles all around her, and the sky was just like a big glass bell. She had seen ships, but far away. They looked like seagulls. The funny dolphins had turned somersaults, and the big whales had spouted water through their nostrils, so it looked like hundreds of fountains all around. Now, it was the turn of the fifth sister. Her birthday was in winter, so she saw what others hadn't seen. The sea looked quite green, and huge icebergs were swimming all around. Each one looked like a pearl, she said, although they were certainly much bigger than the church steeples built by mortals. They appeared in the strangest shapes and sparkled like diamonds. She had sat on one of the biggest, and all the ships sailed terrified around where she sat with her long hair flying in the breeze. But in the evening, the sky was covered with clouds. The lightning flashed, and the thunder boomed while the black sea lifted the huge icebergs up high, where they glittered in the bright flashes of light. On all the ships, they took in the sails, and they were anxious and afraid. But she sat calmly on her floating iceberg and watched the blue streaks of lightning zigzag into the sea. Each time one of the sisters came to the surface of the water for the first time, 
She was always enchanted by the new and wonderful things she had seen. But now that, as grown girls, they were permitted to go up there whenever they liked, it no longer mattered to them. They longed again for home. And after a month, they said, it was the most beautiful down where they lived, and that home was the best of all. Many an evening, the five sisters rose up arm in arm in the surface of the water. They had beautiful voices, sweeter than those of any mortals. And whenever a storm was nigh, and they thought a ship might be wrecked, they swam ahead of the ship and sang so sweetly about how beautiful it was at the bottom of the sea and bade the sailors not to be afraid of coming down there. But the sailors couldn't understand the words. They thought it was the storm. Nor were they able to see the wonders down there either. For when the ship sank, the mortals drowned and came only as corpses to the castle of the king of the sea. Now, in the evening, when the sisters rose up arm in arm through the sea, the little sister was left behind quite alone, looking after them as if she were going to cry. But a mermaid has no tears, and so she suffers even more. Oh, if only I were fifteen, she said, I know that I will truly come to love that world and the mortals who build and dwell up there. At last, she too was fifteen. See, now it is your turn, said her grandmother, the old dowager queen, Come now, let me adorn you just like your other sisters. And she put a wreath of white lilies on her hair. But each flower petal was half a pearl, and the old queen had eight oysters squeeze themselves tightly to the princess's tail to who her high rang. It hurts so much, said the little mermaid. Yes, you must suffer a bit to look pretty, said the old queen. Oh, how happy she would have been to shake off all this magnificence, to take off the heavy wreath. Her red flowers in her garden were more becoming to her, but she dared not do otherwise now. Farewell, she said, and rose as easily and as lightly as a bubble up through the water. The sun had just gone down as she raised her head out of the water but all the clouds still shone like roses and gold, and in the middle of the pink sky, the evening star shone clear and lovely. The air was mild and fresh, and the sea was as smooth as glass. There lay a big ship with three masts. Only a single sail was up, for not a breeze was blowing, and around in the ropes and masts sailors were sitting, there was music and song, and as the evening grew darker, hundreds of many colored lanterns were lit. It looked as if the flags of all nations were waving in the air. The little mermaid swam right over to the cabin window, and every time the water lifted her high in the air, she could see through the glass panes to where many finely dressed mortals were standing. But the handsomest by far 
was the young prince with the big, dark eyes, who was certainly not more than sixteen. It was his birthday, and this was why all the festivities were taking place. The sailors danced on deck, and when the young prince came out, more than a hundred rockets rose into the air. They shone as bright as day, so the little mermaid became quite frightened and ducked down under the water. But she soon stuck her head out again, and then it was as if all the stars in the sky were falling down to her. Never before had she seen such fireworks. Huge suns whirled around, magnificent flaming fish swung in the blue air, and everything was reflected in the clear, calm sea. The ship itself was so lit up that every little rope was visible, not to mention mortals. Oh, how handsome the young prince was, and he shook everybody by the hand and laughed and smiled while the wonderful night was filled with music. It grew late, but the little mermaid couldn't tear her eyes away from the ship or the handsome prince. The many-colored lanterns were put out. The rockets no longer climbed into the air. Nor were any more salutes fired from the cannons either. But deep down in the sea, it rumbled and grumbled. All the while, she sat bobbing up and down in the water so she could see into the cabin. But now, the ship went faster, and one sail after the other spread out. Now the waves were rougher, great clouds rolled up, and in the distance there was lightning. Oh, there was going to be a terrible storm, so the sailors took in the sails. The ship rocked at top speed over the raging sea. The water rose like huge black mountains that wanted to pour over the mast, but the ship dived down like a swan among the high billows and let itself be lifted high again on the towering water. The little mermaid thought this speed was so pleasant, but the sailors didn't think so. The ship creaked and cracked, and the thick planks buckled under the heavy blows. Waves poured over the ship. The mast snapped in the middle, just like a reed, and the ship rolled over on its side while the water poured into the hold. Now, the little mermaid saw they were in danger. She herself had to be aware of planks and bits of wreckage floating on the water. For a moment, it was so pitch black that she could not see a thing. But when the lightning flashed, it was again so bright that she could make out everyone on the ship. They were all floundering, and struggling for their lives. She looked especially for the young prince, and as the ship broke apart, she saw him sink down into the depths. At first she was quite pleased, for now he would come down to her. But then she remembered that mortals could not live in the water, and that only as a corpse could he come down to her father's castle. No, die he mustn't and so she swam among beams and planks that floated on the sea, quite forgetting that they could have crushed her. 
she dived deep down in the water and rose up high among the waves. And thus she came at last to the young prince, who could hardly swim any longer in the stormy sea. His arms and legs were growing weak. His beautiful eyes were closed. He would have died had the little mermaid not arrived. She held his head up above the water and thus let the waves carry them wherever they liked. In the morning, the storm was over. Of the ship there wasn't a chip to be seen. The sun climbed, red and shining, out of the water. It was as if it brought life into the prince's cheek, but his eyes remained closed. The mermaid kissed his high, handsome forehead and stroked back his wet hair. She thought he resembled the marble statue down in her little garden. She kissed him again and wished for him to live. Now she saw the mainland ahead of her, high blue mountains on whose peaks the white snow shone as if swans were lying there. Down by the coast were lovely green forests, and ahead lay a church or a convent, which she didn't rightly know, but it was a building. Lemon and orange trees were growing there in the garden, and in front of the gate, stood high palm trees. The sea had made a little bay there, which was calm, but very deep all the way over to the rock, where the fine white sand had been washed ashore. Here she swam with the handsome prince and put him on the sand, but especially she saw to it that his head was raised in the sunshine. Now the bells rang, in the big white building and many young girls came out through the gate to the garden. Then the little mermaid swam farther out behind some rocks that jutted up out of the water, covered her hair and breast with sea foam so no one could see her little face and then kept watch to see who came out to the unfortunate prince. It wasn't long before a young girl came over to where he lay. She seemed to be quite frightened, but only for a moment. Then she fetched several mortals, and the mermaid saw the prince revive, and that he smiled at everyone around him. But he didn't smile out to her, for he didn't know at all that she had saved him. She was so unhappy, and when he was carried into the big building. She dived down sorrowfully into the water and found her way home to her father's castle. She had always been silent and pensive, but now she was more so than ever. Her sisters asked about what she had seen the first time she was up there, but she told them nothing. Many an evening and morning, she swam up to where she had left the prince, she saw that the fruits in the garden ripened and were picked. She saw that the snow melted in the high mountains, but she didn't see the prince. And so she returned home even sadder than before. Her only comfort was to sit in the little garden and throw her arms around the pretty marble statue that resembled the prince.
but she didn't take care of her flowers. As in the jungle, they grew out over their paths, with their long stalks and leaves intertwined with the branches of the trees until it was quite dark. At last, she couldn't hold out any longer, but told one of her sisters. And then all the others found out at once, but no more than they and a few other mermaids who didn't tell anyone except their closest friends. One of them knew who the prince was. She had also seen the festivities on the ship and knew where he was from and where his kingdom lay. Come, little sister, said the other princesses. And with their arms around one another's shoulders, they came up to the surface of the water in a long row in front of the spot where they knew the prince's castle stood. It was made of a pale yellow, shiny kind of stone with great stairways. One went right down into the water. Magnificent gilded domes soared above the roof and among the pillars that went around the whole building stood marble statues that looked as if they were alive. Through the clear glass and the high windows one could see the most magnificent halls where costly silken curtains and tapestries were hanging and all the walls were adorned with large paintings that were a joy to behold. In the middle of the biggest hall splashed a great fountain. Streams of water shot up high toward the glass dome and the roof through which the sun shone on the water and all the lovely plants growing in the big pool. She knew where he lived, and many an evening, the night she came there over the water, she swam much closer to the land than any of the others had dared. Yes, she went all the way up the little canal, under the magnificent marble balcony that cast a long shadow on the water. Here she sat and looked at the young prince, who thought he was quite alone in the clear moonlight. Many an evening she saw him sail to the sound of music in the splendid boat on which the flags were waving. She peeped out from among her green rushes and caught the wind in her long silvery white veil. And if anyone saw it, he thought it was a swan spreading its wings. Many a night, when the fishermen were fishing by torchlight in the sea, she heard them tell so many good things about the young prince that she was glad she had saved his life when he was drifting about half dead on the waves. And she thought of how fervently she had kissed him then. He knew nothing about it at all, couldn't even dream of her once. She grew fonder and fonder of mortals, wished more and more that she could rise up among them. She thought, their world was far bigger than hers. Why, they could fly over the sea in ships and climb the high mountains way above the clouds and their lands with forests and fields stretched farther than she could see. There was so much she wanted to find out, but her sisters didn't know the answers to everything. And so she asked her old grandmother, and she knew the upper world well which she quite rightly called 
the lands above the sea. If mortals don't drown, the little mermaid asked, do they live forever? Don't they die the way we do down here in the sea? Why, yes, said the old queen, they must also die, and their lifetime is much shorter than ours. We can live to be three hundred years old, but when we stop existing here, we only turn into foam upon the water. We don't even have a grave down here among our loved ones. We have no immortal soul. We never have life again. We are like the green rushes. Once they are cut, they can never be green again. Mortals, on the other hand, have a soul which lives forever after the body is turned to dust. It mounts up through the clear air to all the shining stars. Just as we come to the surface of the water and see the land of the mortals, so do they come up to lovely unknown places that we will never see. Why didn't we get an immortal soul? asked the little mermaid sadly. I gladly live all my hundreds of years just to be immortal for one day and afterward to be able to share in the heavenly world. You mustn't go and think about that, said the old queen. We are much better off than the mortals up there. I too shall die and float as foam upon the sea, not hear the music of the waves or see the lovely flowers and the red sun. Isn't there anything at all I can do to win an immortal soul? No, said the queen. Only if a mortal fell so much in love with you that you were dearer to him than a father and mother. Only if you remain in all his thoughts and he was so deeply attached to you that he let the priest place his right hand on yours with a vow of faithfulness now and forever. Only then would his soul float over into your body and he would also share in the happiness of mortals. He would give you a soul and still keep his own. But that can never happen. The very thing that is so lovely here in the sea, your fishtail, they find so disgusting up on the earth. They don't know any better. Up there, one has to have two clumsy stumps, which they call legs, to be beautiful. Then the little mermaid sighed and looked sadly at her fishtail. Let us be satisfied, said the old queen. We will frisk and frolic in the three hundred years we have to live in. That's plenty of time indeed. Afterward, one can rest in one's grave all the more happily. This evening, we're going to have a court ball. Now, this was a splendor not to be seen on earth. Walls and ceiling in the great ballroom were of thick but clear glass. Several hundred gigantic mussel shells, rosy red and green as grass, stood in rows on each side with a blue flame, which lit up the whole ballroom and shone out through the walls so the sea was so brightly illuminated. One could see the countless fish that swim over the glass wall. On some... The scales shone purple 
on others they seem to be silver and gold. Through the middle of the ballroom flowed a broad stream, and in this the mermen and mermaids danced to the music of their own lovely song. No mortals on earth have such beautiful voices. The little mermaid had the loveliest voice of all, and they clapped their hands for her. And for a moment, her heart was filled with joy, for she knew that she had the most beautiful voice of all on this earth and in the sea. But soon she started thinking again of the world above her. She couldn't forget the handsome prince and her sorrow at not possessing, like him, an immortal soul. And so she slipped out of her father's castle, unnoticed, while everything inside was merriment and song she sat sadly in her little garden. Then she heard a horn ring down through the water, and she thought, now he is sailing up there, the one I love more than a father or mother, the one who remains in all my thoughts and in whose hand I would place all of my life's happiness. I would risk everything to win him and an immortal soul. I will go to the sea witch. I have always been so afraid of her, but maybe she can advise and help me. Now the little mermaid went out of her garden toward the roaring maelstroms behind which the sea witch lived. She had never gone that way before. Here grew no flowers, no seagrass. Only the bare, gray, sandy bottom stretched on toward the maelstroms, which, like roaring mill wheels, whirled around and dragged everything that came their way down to them into the depths. In between these crushing whirlpools, she had to go into the realm of the sea witch, and for a long way, there was no other road than over the hot bubbling mire that the sea witch called her peat bog. And back of it lay her house, right in the midst of an eerie forest. All the trees and bushes were polyps, half animal, half plant. They looked like hundred-headed serpents growing out of the earth. All the branches were long, slimy arms with fingers like sinuous worms and joint by joint they moved from the roots to the outermost tips. Whatever they could grab in the sea, they wound their arms around it and never let it go. Terrified, the little mermaid remained standing outside the forest. Her heart was pounding with fright. She almost turned back, but then she thought of the prince and of an immortal soul, and it gave her courage. She bound her long, flowing hair around her head so the polyps could not grab her by it. She crossed both hands upon her breast, and then off she flew. The way the fish can fly through the water, in among the loathsome polyps that reached out their arms and fingers after her. She saw where each of them had something it had seized, hundreds of small arms held into like strong iron hands. Rows of white bones of mortals who had drowned at sea sunk all the way down there peered forth from the polyps' arms. Ships' wheels and chests they held tightly, skeletons of land animals, 
and most terrifying of all, a little mermaid that they had captured and strangled. Now she came to a large slimy opening in the forest where big fat water snakes gambled, revealing their ugly yellowish-white bellies. In the middle of the opening had been erected a house made of bones of shipwrecked mortals. There sat the sea witch, letting a toad eat from her mouth, just the way mortals permit a little canary bird to eat sugar. She called the fat, hideous water snakes her little chickens and let them tumble on her big, spongy breasts. I know what you want. All right, said the sea witch. It's stupid of you to do it. Nonetheless, you shall have your way, for it will bring you misfortune, my lovely princess. You want to get rid of your fishtail and have two stumps to walk around on instead, just like mortals, so the young prince can fall in love with you, and you can win him and an immortal soul. Just then the sea witch let out a loud and hideous laugh, and that toad and the water snakes fell down to the ground and writhed there. You've come just in the nick of time, said the witch. Tomorrow, after the sun rises, I couldn't help you until another year was over. I shall make you a potion, and before the sun rises, you shall take it and swim to land. Seat yourself upon the shore there and drink it. Then your tail will be split and shrink into what mortals call lovely legs. But it hurts. It is like being pierced through by a sharp sword. Everyone who sees you will say, you are the loveliest mortal child he has ever seen. You will keep your grace of movement. No dancer will ever float the way you do. But each step you take will be like treading on a sharp knife so your blood will flow. If you want to suffer all this, then I will help you. Yes, said the little merman in a trembling voice, thinking of the prince and of winning an immortal soul. But remember, said the witch, once you have been given a mortal shape, you can never become a mermaid again. You can never sink down through the water to your sister's and to your father's castle. And if you do not win the love of the prince, so that your sake he forgets his father and mother and never puts you out of his thoughts and lets the priest place a hand on yours so you become man and wife, you will not win an immortal soul. The first morning, after he is married to another, your heart will break and you will turn into foam upon the water. This I want, said the little mermaid, and turned deathly pale. But you also must pay me, said the witch, and what I demand is no small thing. You have the loveliest voice of all down here, at the bottom of the sea, and you probably think you're going to enchant him with it. But that voice you shall give to me. I want the best thing you have for my precious drink. Why? I must put my very own blood in it, so it'll be as sharp as a two-edged sword. But if you take my voice to the little mermaid, what will I have left? Your lovely figure, said the witch, your grace of movement, and your sparkling eyes. With them you can enchant a mortal heart, all right, 
stick out your little tongue so I can cut it off in payment, and you shall have the potent drink. So be it, said the little mermaid, and the witch put her kettle on to brew the magic potion. Cleanliness is a good thing, she said, and scoured her kettle with her water snakes, which she knotted together. Now she cut her breast and let the black blood drip into the kettle. The steam made strange shapes that were terrifying and dreadful to see. Every moment the witch put something new into the kettle and went ahead cooked properly. It was like crocodile tears. At last the drink was ready and it was clear as water. There it is, said the witch, and cut out the little mermaid's tongue. Now she was mute and could neither speak nor sing. If any of the polyps should grab you when you go back through the forest, just throw one drop of this drink on them, and their arms and fingers will burst into a thousand pieces. But the little mermaid didn't have to do that. The polyps drew back in terror when they saw the shining drink that glowed in her hand like a glittering star. And she soon came through the forest, the bog, and the roaring maelstroms. <laughs>